Good morning. Today we start a new course of sermons on life and teaching. So if you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and open that up to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 16 to 21 here in just a few moments together. So we're beginning this course of sermons to help us lay a foundation for us to be equipped to live out the answer to the question we've been asking, what if the whole church was a missionary? Paul wrote to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 and he told him, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Lord promises through Paul's words to Timothy that if he pays close attention to his life and his teaching, there's salvation to be had. And if we're going to engage our world, if KDSC is a true spiritual DNA, and we ask and are seeking to answer the question, what if the whole church was the missionary? It's super important that we pay close attention to our life and our teaching because salvation is at stake. This is important because we enter into our vocational domains of society and we need to understand that it's the battleground for the conflict with what the Bible calls the world system against the kingdom of God. And this world system falls under the influence of the hosts of evil. These hosts have been at war with God via humanity and against humanity through creation from almost the very beginning. It's a war of beliefs, and it affects all of creation. You sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. So habit, you reap your destiny. There are no such things as neutral thoughts. None. They either lead to life or they're rooted in lies which will culminate in death. We need a doctrinal teaching framework to build our lives on so that we are bearers of reality, not bearers of demonic lies disguised as light, coming from dark sources disguised as light, but function as schemes to wreck people, direct creation, and then create chaos in the local church. Listen to how Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 to 15. For such people, and he's speaking to people who are bearing the lies, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. Wow. In this course of sermons, we want to build the framework for what the Bible says about teachings, about doctrines, that will help us use our Bibles better in the workplace as we engage in this conflict of the kingdom of God 
with the kingdom of this world. And remember, there are no neutral ideas. So we're going to start with the question, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Why are we going to start with that question? The reason we start with the Bible is because when aberrant and fringe teachings invade a Christian's mind and then as a result the local church, it's because someone has strayed from the Bible into man's preferred thoughts or outcomes superimposed onto the Bible, misusing the Bible and God's intent. These ideas are usually multiple steps removed from the author's intent in the Bible verses that are usually proof-texted and made to look like the author's intent. We just did a class this morning on how to exegete the scriptures upstairs for first Sunday, and we might revisit that because it's key to understanding how to read the Bible well. We got to have some basic doctrines, which you just saw on the screen, in place to help us do what Paul told the Corinthians to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 5, where he said, Although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. What are those strongholds? Well, he answers it in verse 5. We demolish arguments and every proud thing raised up against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is why we say there are no such thing as neutral thoughts. They're either coming from the evil one or they come from truth, reality. And Paul said that's not a physical war. You can't shoot that down. It's a battle of ideas and we take those lies captive and we make them obey Jesus. Well, we can't do that unless we have a framework for determining what's true. So therefore, we have to determine what the source of truth is and the Bible says that about itself. With the Bible and responsible exegesis of the Bible in hand. We want to be able to demolish strongholds and thoughts and ideas cleverly designed to look true but are not so that we can make our thoughts obey Jesus. One of the first things that gets jettisoned when we engage the world because it's one of the first attacks of the enemy is the Bible. We're made to feel guilty for using it. We're made to feel ashamed because we're told it's full of a bunch of old-fashioned ideas. The problem with that is what the Bible says about itself. And often, unfortunately, what people who call themselves Christians represent is not what the Bible says, for good and bad. And I mean good in the sense of it's socially accepted or bad in the sense it's socially rejected. So we got to ask and answer the question, what is the Bible? And what does the Bible say about itself? Well, we're going to let the Bible speak to that. And it's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21. So if you would, stand with me. We're going to read this together. It's going to be on the screen. Let's let the Bible say what it is. 
For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What is the Bible? I want to commend you to a work that's worth putting on your shelf, John Frame's Systematic Theology, to help you dive into questions that we can't answer in a sermon. The sermon's job is not to do a classroom lecture. That's what First Sunday's for. The sermon's job is to open the Bible and teach from the Bible. So I'm not going to give you a classroom lecture. We're going to see what the Bible says about itself, and we're going to give the implications to that. But you need some resources on your shelf because there's a lot of complicated questions that have complicated answers that you're going to have when you read your Bible. And as we tell you all the time, we are not super priests, your elders. We're the same priests as you are. You have the same Holy Spirit we have. You have the same Bible we have. And we all have accesses to the same resources. You just got to go use them. And I commend Frame to you because he's going to help you wrestle through some of these. Our task is to ask and answer the question, what does the Bible say about God's Word? Well, the Bible affirms for us, this is point number one. These notes are available for you on the blog theologyinthedirt.com. The Bible is God's Word. Now, if you will give me a few moments before we get to unpacking what Peter says here, I need to set that up for you. The Bible is God's Word. We're going to do what's called some expositional apologetics in just a moment by walking through Peter's words, and we're going to let the Bible defend itself. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, the Bible does not need me to defend it. It will defend itself. The Bible needs no more defense than a lion. You just unleash it. I don't need to defend the Bible. It will handle itself. Our task is to unleash it, let it speak. So I want to give us some rails for that to run on. I want to give you a very oversimplified process of God speaking to man and how it gets to words on a page. Frame will do a whole chapter on this. God speaks, that's the divine voice. He talks to his people. It started in the garden in Genesis. Before sin, the curse of sin, the Lord himself walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's where he met with them. And he spoke to them. He spoke words to them. Language, by the way, language is a divine thing. It's part of what distinguishes us from other animals. Language is a component of being created in the image of God. So language and words are important. God spoke and he talked to his people. So it's divine voice, God speaks, people listen, they hear God and they learn from him. Then they either obey or they disobey. 
And then people speak what God has said to them, to other people. And often it's in obedience because God told them to go tell other people what he said. People then write down what God has said because God told, for them, to, told them to write it down. He said for them to do it. And they believed that others should know what God said. Therefore, the Bible has one author, God. The Bible has many scribes who captured God's actions and words. Therefore, the Bible is one book with 66 chapters that tells one cohesive story. One book, 66 chapters, one author, many scribes that tells one story. The scribes of the Bible write down God's words, and those words carry the authority of God who spoke them. Words carry the meaning of the author, in this case, is God. And thus, whatever authority the author has in the lives of the hearers, therefore the words that God spoke carry God's authority. This is why the Bible, claiming to be from God, carries authority for the Christians. Does that make sense? That's why it's our authority, and it is our authority. We don't obey cultural laws. We obey what God says is true, and part of our task as people sent in the creation mandate is to see that the whole world hears and has an opportunity to respond to Christ in salvation and begin to live out what God says is true. So Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are the place, it's the foundational framework for what is true for everything thereafter. There's a little quotation from John Frame for you to help out a little bit. It should not be surprising that Paul, or for that matter, Moses, or David, or Peter, or Malachi, or Ezekiel, that their written words should have the same authority as the spoken words. Written revelation from God is not just a series of casual notes by inspired writers. Written revelation plays a special divinely appointed role in the history of redemption. And to appreciate the nature of such revelation, we must understand that theological purpose. We find that purpose in Scripture itself. Scripture teaches the doctrine of Scripture along with all its other doctrines. The Bible is the source of what we're to believe about the Bible. Not what a scholar says, not what the world says. The Bible itself is the source of what we're to believe about the Bible. The Bible has plenty to say about what it is. We don't have to make it up. It's in the manual. Divine revelation is not just a momentary experience given to an individual. God reveals himself so that those who receive that revelation will capture his actions and his words so that other people will know God. I give you a series of Passages in Genesis that capture this process. Genesis 8:20, God speaks, Noah builds an altar in response to God's words and God's deliverance of him and his family, just like God said he would do. Same thing about the rainbow, which is a sign of his covenant. Genesis 12, same thing with Abram. God speaks, God delivers, Abraham obeys, constructs a monument. Same thing in Genesis 28 with Jacob. These memorials are less than written revelation. And these memorials are events that are then written about to capture what God did. His pattern and his activity and the words he spoke. So these memorials do indicate the point, And that is that God intends to leave a per permanent witness 
to his words that caused those memorials to be constructed. This pattern is established early in the Bible. And therefore, Peter's summary that we just read captures this process. So Peter, again, is not making stuff up. He's being carried along and inspired to write about what God has already written about, about what the Bible says about itself. Everybody following me here? So it's not making anything up. Peter's preaching about what the Bible captures and its processes about the nature of God. So what does Peter say? Peter says a mouthful. Peter says a lot to his audience. And by the way, this is an example of what's called expositional apologetics. You don't need Platonic philosophy to defend God and his word. You don't need human logic to defend God. God's word will defend itself and is enough when assimilated to defend everything God teaches about himself and his word. So when you go to the Bible, you can use the Bible to defend the faith. Does that make sense? And I would argue we need to start there before we start in any other method of defending the faith. Start with the Bible, lest we drift into other world views that are not appropriate for what the Bible teaches. You don't need Platonic philosophy to defend God. The Bible will do that. Plato was a pagan, and his philosophy is filled with pagan ideas and thoughts. So don't start with Plato. Don't start with Aristotle. Start with the Bible. Because here's a little hint. If the Bible's true, Plato and Aristotle were created by the God of the Bible. And although they might have observed some things that were real, they were also very off. And we want to go to the source who created them. And he gave us a word that we can trust. So what did Peter say that the Bible is? Well, the first thing we note in the scriptures is that the Bible is not cleverly contrived myths. He says here, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power of our coming Lord Jesus. If we've been teaching, you've been here long enough, you know that the whole Bible preaches the gospel. And that the gospel writers are preaching from the Old Testament as they preach about Jesus, because Jesus is the promised one from Genesis 3.15. From the very beginning, Jesus who created everything promised he would come in the fullness of time. And he would break the curse of sin. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would die in our place for our sin, be buried and rise on the third day. Acts 13, 31 and 32 confirms for us that everything written in the Old Testament has been fulfilled and completed in Jesus who fulfilled all the promises. It's in the manual. And therefore, Peter says to them, we're not following cleverly contrived myths when we preach to you about Jesus from the Bible. They're not myths. We didn't make them up. So the Bible is not cleverly contrived myths, amen? That's good news. We're talking about reality. When we read the Bible, we're reading reality. This isn't in your notes, but this is worth noting. When Jesus said in John 17, 17, he's praying for his people. He's about to go to the cross, and Jesus prays for us. Isn't that awesome? If you thought you've never been prayed for, no, Jesus prayed for you. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus does something amazing here. He gets into the grammar. This is why grammar is important. Grammar is inspired. Truth is not an adjective. It's a noun. Adjectives modify nouns. If Jesus had used an adjective when he said truth, it would mean the Bible contains some true things. 
something what he said. He said, sanctify them in their truth. Your word is truth now, meaning the very essence of God's word is true. In its very nature, it affirms only reality. Doesn't just contain some reality, it is reality. Dude, that's awesome. What that means is these aren't cleverly contrived myths, but it's reality. Isn't that awesome? You can trust your Bible. The next thing we see Peter says here is the Bible is the eyewitness account of God's activity and speaking in the world. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. We've witnessed this with our own eyes. Everything we've read, Genesis to Malachi, Jesus fulfilled. Everything God's promises done in him, they're done. He met all the promises. Wow. And they're eyewitnesses of it. So the authors of the Bible claim to be people with their own eyes saw it. Not cleverly contrived myths, but an eyewitness account. Gosh, Luke even says it in his introduction to his gospel. Most excellent Theophilus. I've undertaken a careful, careful research to lay out for you everything that was written about Jesus, everything that we saw about Jesus so that you would know the certainty about what you've heard. Like that, that's power, that, that matters. He's telling you, I'm writing you a historical account of what's real. Eyewitnesses. Peter's referring particularly here to the witness of the New Testament specifically, but then he does something even more amazing because he shifts focus to the book that prepared them for what they would witness in Jesus, and that is the Old Testament. He tells us here in verse 19 where they got this teaching from. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. The Bible, Genesis to Malachi, is God's prophetic word. It's God's word from himself to us, and he says it is strongly confirmed. How is it strongly confirmed? In the person of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled every stitch of it. And the Lord himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now listen, this is why Lewis said about Jesus, he's either Lord, liar, or a lunatic. The Bible leaves us no other option. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and he truly has fulfilled everything written in the Bible about himself and testifies to its truth, or he's a liar, and it's better we all just go home. Or he's a lunatic, and we all just better go home. He's going to leave us any room here. So either the Bible's self-attestation is true, or it's not. And they're claiming to be eyewitnesses of Jesus who told them that it's completely fulfilled, therefore confirming what the Bible says about itself. So we have the prophetic word of the Old Testament strongly confirmed because Jesus fulfilled it, preached it, lived it out. He tells us we would do well to pay attention to God's word. I almost feel like that's the most understated thing in the Bible. We would do well to pay attention to it. I'm like, no duh. If it is true and it is God's word, we would do really well to pay attention to it. Then he tells us something astounding. No prophecy of Scripture comes from man's own interpretation. Nothing written in the Bible comes from man interpreting events by himself. Do you feel that? Nothing written in the Bible came from somebody going, hmm, this sounds like a good idea. Think I'll write this down and maybe people will read it later. It's not what happened. He says, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. It, it wasn't up to them. 
There was something happening that was supernatural and rich. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says about itself. God talked to them. The Holy Spirit carried them along and made it make sense. They wrote it down. That's how the words in your Bible got on the page that they're on today and what you have in front of you. That's what it says about itself. Thus, what we said earlier, the God of the Bible is the author of the Bible. The people writing are God's scribes. And thus, the Bible is one book with 66 chapters and one cohesive narrative. Ultimately, ultimately though, you have to be convinced by faith. Not reason alone about God's word. Reason will not save you. The Bible never tells us you can be saved by reason. There's only one way you can be saved, and that's faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who died in your place for your sin, was buried on the third day rose, and ascended back to the Father, and sits at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for those who believe in him by faith. It's the only way to be saved. And you either believe that by faith from the Bible, or you don't. There's no middle ground. We read the Bible, and it's self-attesting message, and we either believe or we don't. But we can't pretend it doesn't claim to be what it says it is. And that's God's word given to man. Make sense? Therefore, the Bible is God's word. So, if the Bible's God's word, what's the result of that in practice? These are some big general applications. If the Bible truly is God's word, and we believe it is, what's the result? This is our application. I have it as point number two. Since the Bible's God's word, we must believe the Bible's authoritative. Since the Bible's God's word, we have to believe it's authoritative. Peter tells his hearers they do well to pay attention to God's word precisely because it's God's word. And if it's God's word, listen to me very carefully. The people you come in contact every day have nothing more important to hear than the voice of God speaking to them. If what the Bible says is true about God and who mankind is, there's nothing more important to hear than what God says about who they are and who he is. Nothing more important. I can promise you the dark forces of evil in the heavenly places are whispering a million things contrary to that, coming as light and promises of light when in fact, as we read earlier, our darkness covered in light and our death coated in sugar to go down easy. The Bible's God's word. They had to believe it's authoritative and there's nothing else more important. We read from Wayne Grudem, all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any part of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Therefore, Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all Scripture is inspired, literally breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that, here's the purpose so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How do you get equipping and completion to do every good work? The scriptures that literally are breathed out that come out of the mouth of God. Therefore, it's authoritative. As we told you, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now, I'm not adjective. The Bible is authoritative because it claims to come from God's mouth and is in itself the definition of what is true. Thus, the Bible's authoritative because it's God's word, not because of any particular content. That makes sense? It's true because it came from God, not because simply what it says. 
what it says is true because it came from God. Not because it works for you today. Forgiving somebody for doing you wrong is not going to work for you today. But it's obedience to God, and I promise you it will produce fruit later. Make sense? So you don't judge it based on how it feels and it's working right now. What it says about sexual ethic is true and has fruit over the long term whether or not it works for me today. It's authoritative because it comes from God. Well, since the Bible is God's word, this is point number three. Since the Bible is God's word, we must believe the Bible is infallible. We have to believe it's infallible. Infallible means incapable of erring, and it also means it only affirms what is true. Infallible is a stronger adjective than inerrant. Infallible is a term more in line with the history of how the church has dealt with the authority of God's word. I prefer the term infallible to inerrant, even though I use the word inerrant a lot. I like both. Both are fine. I think infallible is a stronger word. Inerrancy, and this is one of the reasons I'm using infallible today. I want to give you a reason why I'm using it. Is a post-enlightenment word that was used in 1978 in response to enlightenment teachings that brought about liberal theology in the church. Particularly in the early 1900s, the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And that's probably more church history than you came here for today. But the history of the church has been to refer to the scriptures as infallible, which includes the idea that it doesn't any, contain anything contrary to fact, which is what inerrancy intends to capture. We don't need a made-up doctrine in 1978 to affirm the fact that the Bible is true. It doesn't confirm anything contrary to fact, and it doesn't err in any of its teaching, regardless of what the culture says. Okay? That makes sense? So it's true when it says there's male and female. It's true. And regardless of what culture says or someone's story tells you, they're not telling you the truth. So it's infallible and it always tells the truth and never gets off track of what is true. Rather than critiquing science, which by the way, just, just a little worldview note, science and scientists divorced from Christianity is the new clergy. You need to understand that. It used to be that clergy were considered the people you go to to understand wisdom and truth. That is no longer the case. Modern science divorced from actual reason and logic, which is simply a worldview disguised as reason and logic, and those who propagate it are the new clergy. All you gotta do is pay attention because somebody can say garbage, trash, and then they say science, and everybody's like, well, it's science, we better get in line. And I'm going... Now, if I apply the actual scientific method to that, I don't think that's going to be true, but it's science. Well, right? Just throw science. I've actually started having some fun on Twitter every now and then when I say that Georgia Bulldogs are the best college football team ever in the history of college football, dot, 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 science. <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with it because I said science, right? So rather than critiquing science married to atheist ideology, somebody created a 
term to defend the Bible against a weak attack. You don't have to do that. The Bible speaks for itself. It doesn't err. It doesn't fail. It says it's true. It's not cleverly devised myths. It's firmly confirmed. And you do well to pay attention to it because men didn't make it up. The Holy Spirit told them they were carried by his power and they wrote it down. Now again, you either believe that or you don't. You don't have to believe it. Nobody's making you believe it. But if you've been convinced by the Holy Spirit and the powerful gospel, that's true. That's where we stand. It doesn't mean we're stupid with it. It doesn't even mean we're, we beat people up with it. We shouldn't, but we certainly don't hide it. If we're going to engage and see people redeemed, it's not by affirming things that are killing them. It's by bringing the truth down to superimpose on top of them and rescue them from death. If the whole church is the missionary, you need to know and believe this. This is an example. I said this upstairs this morning. We spend time trying to defend Genesis 1 and 2 from Darwin, and that's a blatant misuse of the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Moses in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Moses didn't care who Darwin was. He was concerned that the people of God not follow Baal when they entered Canaan. The one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. There is no other, and he's the one who made, and he created male and female in his image. He performed the first wedding ceremony, so when we get over into Canaan, don't marry multiple women. And don't follow Baal and Chemosh, because there's only one God, and his name is Yahweh. That's what he's concerned with, because the power of the dark world is coming against the kingdom of God and he wanted them to succeed as they entered the land he promised as the base, the garden from which they would carry the gospel to the nations but they began to believe the other narratives, the dark narratives oh I can have many wives, or oh I should worship this God, or add this God to my many gods next thing you know they didn't pay attention to God's word and they got off track we failed to understand the whole narrative as a whole story. And we don't have to make it say things that it doesn't say. I said this to you, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. You don't have to be afraid of your Bible. Just let it speak. Just let it speak. You don't have to read something on top of it to make it less offensive, or you don't need to read anything into it to make it more offensive. Just let it speak. Uncage it. Now, some places you've got to do a little work. I'm not going to lie to you. There's some complicated things in the Bible. I'm in a theological cave right now. I'm having to work my way through and wind my way through, thanks to Jim. <laughs> not really. It's a, the Lord. Jim brought me something. My son brought me something. My 21-year-old theological genius kid brought me something. He's challenging me on some stuff. And at the same time, I'm reading things in my Bible that I've struggled with in the language for a while. And I'm like, Lord, that must be you. Because I know Jim and Gabe didn't talk about it. And it's like, hey, let's make Jolly get in a theological cave. No. It was the Lord going, you need to wrestle with this. Because you've been wrestling with it for a few years. So I had gum. So I'm in a theological cave. The Bible says some complicated things. But my task isn't to tame it. My task is to read it, let it speak, and let it change me. I have to have things that change in me. My belief system needs to shift, not God's. I'm the problem, not God's. I'm the problem, not the Bible. Does that make sense? The Bible doesn't err in anything. It just affirms what's absolutely true. I've spent too much time there. I need to move on. Number four, 
There's some other scriptures you can look at under point three. Number four, since the Bible's God's word, we must believe the Bible's clear. Since it's God's word, we have to believe it's clear. And I also want to be clear. Deuteronomy 8, 3, Psalm 19, 7, Matthew 4, 4 confirm for us that the Bible, God's word is for everybody. The Bible's for everybody. There are mysteries in the text of Scripture that are deep and nuanced and require growth and knowledge and some deep language studies if you want to sound their depth. And no doubt in history, there's been people who've made a mess out of God's word and misled many people. So is the Bible just unclear? No. The Bible's clear the problem's often us, even though it contains hard things. So what does the clarity of the Bible mean? It means the Scriptures are clear and written in such a way that all its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. That's a quote from Wayne Grudem. I would add to that and do it in fellowship with other Holy Spirit-filled believers. Since we believe the Bible tells us what we need to know, what does it say about clarity? Well, Psalm 19.7 says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you by letting you go hungry, then gave you manna to eat, that you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If it's unclear, how am I going to live by it when I read it? Problem's not the word. Problem's Mitchell Jolly. All of Psalm 119, can't read all of it. All of it tells us about that. Psalm 119, 9 to 10, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. You want to be pure? Obey God's word. I've sought you with my heart. Don't let me wander from your command. If it's not clear, how can I keep it? How can I keep from wondering if God's word is not clear? Well, it is clear. Five, and we're almost done, I promise. Hang tight. It's the last one. Since the Bible's God's word, we have to believe it's necessary. If the Bible's God's word, we have to believe it's necessary. Romans 1 affirms that creation reveals some of God's nature. What creation reveals about God is enough to hold mankind accountable for their sin and idolatry, but not enough to save man from his sin. So what is it that reveals God in a special way that can lead people to know God and be saved from the curse of sin? God's word. Gave you a lengthy quote. I'm not gonna take time to read it. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, But as for you, continuing what you've learned and firmly believed, you know those things, you know those who taught you, and you know from infancy, you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Meaning, all of the Bible is able to teach you how to be saved through Jesus Christ. Meaning, it is absolutely 100% clear and necessary. The Bible's necessary for salvation. Romans 10, 13 to 17, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on him and who they've not believed in? And how can they believe in believe without how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent, as is written, written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, but not all obey the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. And the message about Christ, he affirms, comes from the Bible. The Bible's necessary for being saved. The Bible's necessary for knowing God's will. So finally, how are we going to end if all this is true? So the Bible's God's word, and as a result, all these good things we've talked about. Three Rivers Church, read your Bible. Just read it. Start by reading it. Just read it. You need to read it, you need to read it, you need to read it. Because it says it's God's word. If it's God's word, there's nothing else you need to know. Nothing more important. If it's true, if all this is true, then study it. Because as you read it, it's going to introduce you to some complicated things. It's going to challenge your worldview. Because listen, we're born and conceived with sin affecting every part of our being. And we live in a world that's full of conflict between the dark kingdom and the kingdom of God. And there are no neutral ideas. And the enemy, through sometimes intentional sources and sometimes unsuspecting sources, are going to teach you false things. And you're going to absorb them into your framework of thinking and acting. And you're going to act on them and mess things up. And you're going to wonder what went wrong. And as you read your Bible, you're going to run across things that challenge that. That's where study comes in. Let it speak. Study it. Dig into it. Ask God, what are you saying here? What are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about me? What are you saying about my world? What do you want me to do in response to it? So as you read it, you're going to read hard things. As you find those hard things, study them. Let it talk. And if you need sources, ask I will point you to things that'll be hard to read. Because listen, as easy as it is to read, some things are hard to study and it's going to take time. Being theologically literate takes a little work. And I'm telling you, there's nothing more important for you to do because life and death are at stake in it. If it's true, study your Bible. And if this is all true, do everything you can to make sure others know Jesus and know that Jesus can and will rescue them from the kingdom of darkness if they'll believe in him by faith because that's what the Bible tells us and if this is true make sure those who don't know know because I promise you there's no physical need they have today that is greater than that need what does it gain a man or what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul Jesus said well the obvious answer to that question is it doesn't profit them at all Christian history proves these three things read study and make sure people have the Bible it proves these three applications are central to great commission work and that followers of Jesus have striven since the Lord gave us the great commission to see that the message of the gospel contained in the books of the Bible goes to the ends of the earth beginning in their own cities and they strive to make sure it's accurately translated into all the languages of the peoples of the nations who receive it so they can hear and understand that's been the history of the church to read it, study it and make sure those who don't have it get it doesn't get any more simple than that wherever the Bible goes historically and translated and understood properly God brings good and healing and wholeness to villages, cities and nations by the way, Western civilization is constructed on a framework of things that are true from the Bible. And whatever good comes out of Western civilization is because God created it in a framework that's built upon His truth. 
right, wrong, good, bad, or indifferent, whether you agree with it or not, it's historical fact. And part of our task is to make sure all the nations of the earth have access to this book that will teach them human flourishing to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So three of us church, let's get after it. Let's get after it. Let's not just be content to sing some songs and go, wow, I, I feel good today. I had goosebumps in worship. Awesome. Export those goosebumps to people who don't have them. Because some of them get goosebumps to Migos. And I would argue that's not from the Holy Spirit, that's from the dark one. I like Migos. By the way, I ain't hating on them. I'm just saying it's not a redemptive message. It's just not. You can get goosebumps from lies. Goosebumps don't necessarily mean Holy Spirit. If you got Holy Spirit bumps today, and it's from the Word of God, you export that. But make sure you export that in God's Word, not just the emotional experience. That makes sense? We have a task to do. God's Word tells us what it is. Let's make sure our city has it. I'm about to get on a soapbox. There are far too many of us concerned with our second, third, and fourth Bible study or attending our third church this week than we are making sure those in the dark corners of Floyd County, the 90,000 who don't walk in any church in Floyd County, and making sure they know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're spiritually fat and our city's dying. And God's Word tells us the solution for them to know Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's it. They don't know. And here's the hard part of Floyd County. If you ask them, they will tell you they raised their hand at VBS and prayed to receive Jesus when they were three. But they don't have their kids and they're strung out on meth. That's the hard part of cultural Christianity and the Bible will crack that open if you will unleash it on them. But you've got to unleash it on them because they're not coming. They're not in this room. They're not in any church in Floyd County. They don't come to us. Jesus sends us to them. Go and make disciples of all nations. Not hang out, sing some cool songs, look good, and they'll come to your building. That's not how it works. We have to open the Bible and preach it to people who need to hear it. And if we will do that, this is why the whole church is the missionary. We've been asking and trying to answer that question for 23 years. What if the whole church was the missionary? If you will take that message, God will wreck Floyd County with the gospel. But right now, it's just contained on Sunday mornings and worship services. And a few Bible studies and small groups. That's it. And we think we've done the will of God. We haven't followed cleverly devised myths. But Jesus revealed himself and we have made it known and we have the prophetic word more sure that it testifies to it. And it didn't come from man's own will. It came from God himself. Therefore, we do well to pay attention to it. And it tells us, go make disciples. So through the church, what are we waiting on? What are we waiting on? Let's get after it. Let's do it. God's been clear. Now here's what we're going to do. There's going to be time for that, but we're going to worship the Lord. Because His Word tells us, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may test and approve what God's perfect will is, His good, pleasing, perfect will. We're going to respond to Him in worship this morning. And when worship's over, Pastor Jim will speak a benediction over you, and he will say, Three of His church, you are sent. Then go get after it.
Let's worship and prepare to go to work. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would convict us with a passion for your word. That your word would be a lamp for our feet and light for our path and we would hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you, but rather we might be sent on mission to obey what it says about you and what you called us to do. So help us to do all of that. Thank you for your word that teaches us what it is so that we know the power that is contained between these pages. Father, help us to believe that by faith and act on it. Now, Lord, we pray that you would manifest your presence among us. Lord Jesus, we want you. We don't just want the fruit of our city. We want you. We want to walk with you. We want to enjoy your presence as you take us into the dark places. Your last words in the commission were, and don't forget I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus, thank you for your presence this morning. And we pray that you would tangibly somehow manifest your presence among us and go with us as we're singing.